The following is a Westminster Seminary, California, Convocation Lecture. The statements, views, and opinions presented in this message are those of the speaker and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online at wscal.edu or call 888-480-8474, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Yesterday's lecture by our, uh, the wonderful lecture by our speaker, Dr. John Payne, reminded me of a line uh, that Robert Dendahl concluded in his inaugural address, where he said, our task must be to be men of academic excellence who have been with Jesus, who can reach out and speak to the philosophies and religions of our age, as well as to the common man, and both by message and by our lives. Um, Wonderful words from our previous president, whom we honor, along with his wife, Nellie, through these lecture series. And I think John being here seems incredibly appropriate as he speaks to us about the 21st century reformed pastor. And this morning, he's going to be focusing on the topic of proclamation. John, bring us the word this morning. The 21st century reformed pastor uses an iPad to preach. So good to be with you again uh, this morning. Um, such a joy to uh, connect with uh, many of the faculty and uh, old friends and new friends and, and to meet many of uh, you students. I hope to get a chance to meet and speak with you uh, more uh, this afternoon and tomorrow. We learned yesterday that the 21st century Reformed pastor is called to walk with God. He is called to walk with God. Any uh, conception of the Reformed ministry that does not include the minister himself walking closely with God is uh, not only unbiblical, it doesn't uh, in any way connect with the traditional Reformed and confessional faith and heritage. The 21st century Reformed pastor is a man who walks with God, who walks with God in genuine piety, uh, sincerely and promptly offering his heart uh, to God without condition. God wants our hearts before he wants our service and our ministry. As ordained ambassadors of Christ's kingdom, God has also called pastors to the ministry of proclamation, to the ministry of proclamation. It's the nature and task of the ministry of proclamation that I want us to spend a few minutes thinking about uh, this morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 18, as we consider a text that uh, so clearly uh, sets forth this idea that ministers are called to be those who proclaim, who are heralds, who are ambassadors of the gospel. The Apostle Paul writes, quote, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors. For Christ, 
Now you can underline this bit if you write in your Bible. God making his appeal through us. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Well, let's open in prayer together. Our Father, we thank you for your word, which does not leave us guessing about the nature and task of the gospel minister, not only as a man who is called to walk with you in sincere piety, but also a man who is called to be a herald, to proclaim the gospel in word and in sacrament. And oh, what a blessing to sing that hymn written in 1742 that we just sang from Charles Wesley, which declares the gospel so beautifully. The wounds of Christ crying out, forgive him, forgive her. Those bleeding wounds. Oh Lord, woe be unto us if we as pastors do not preach the wounds and the blood and the death of our Lord Jesus Christ and his hell-conquering resurrection. The whole gospel, Lord, for the whole man, we pray that we would be those who would Declare boldly and courageously the finished work of Christ. Lord, bless this time together as we consider these important truths. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When people hear the name Robert Bruce, they typically think of that great medieval Scottish uh, king, the one who led his nation in the Scottish Wars of Independence. Uh, king Robert the Bruce is distinctly remembered for his heroic leadership at the Battle of Bannockburn against their English foes south of Hadrian's Wall in the year 1314. But there is another Robert Bruce, a descendant of the great medieval king that came on the scene 250 years later. He was a successor to John Knox at St. Giles, the High Kirk in Edinburgh. He took up his charge in Edinburgh in 1587 and had the reputation of being a fiery, and brave herald of the gospel. The story is told that one Lord's Day, Robert Bruce ascended the elevated pulpit at St. Giles to preach God's word, and King James VI of Scotland, who later became King James I of England, was comfortably perched in his royal gallery overlooking the congregation from the rear of the sanctuary. The relationship of, between Bruce and the Stuart King, though once amicable, became strained due to Bruce's unwillingness to negotiate the truth in relation to James's unscrupulous politics, especially as it concerned the Presbyterian Church of Scotland. On this particular Lord's Day, after Bruce commenced his sermon, the king showed his contempt for Bruce by carrying on a loud and ill-mannered conversation with all of his courtiers in the back of the sanctuary. Bruce paused for a moment until the king quieted down. Bruce began preaching again, and King James VI began his loud and impudent conversation one again. This scenario happened yet again. And finally, Bruce, the courageous preacher, had had enough. The zealous Scottish minister looked up to the royal gallery and declared the following. 
It is said to have been an expression of the wisest of kings. When the lion roars, all the beasts of the field are quiet. The lion of the tribe of Judah is now roaring in the voice of his gospel, and it becomes all the petty kings of the earth to be silent. Robert Bruce's courageous words remind us that Jesus Christ is indeed roaring in and through the proclamation of the gospel, and that he, quote, makes his appeal through gospel ministers who faithfully execute the ministry of word and sacrament. And that's what I would like us to reflect a little upon this morning, namely, the paramount call upon 21st century Reformed pastors to be courageous heralds, courageous heralds of the good news of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Some may think it rather unnecessary to encourage the students and faculty at Westminster Seminary, California to reflect upon such a foundational subject. Perhaps you're thinking to yourself, did this guy really come all the way from South Carolina to tell us to preach the gospel? The answer is yes. Uh, Actually, I have come from South Carolina to tell you and to encourage you to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. For if I've learned anything over the past 20 years of ordained ministry, it's three things. The first one is this. Satan is hell-bent on attacking the gospel, on attacking the gospel ministry, and attacking gospel ministers. The devil is industrious in his objective to distort, undermine, redefine, confuse, and minimize the nature and application of the gospel in the ministry of the church. Satan knows that the gospel is the power of God into salvation. Uh, And at times, I think, he has more confidence in that than we do. The devil and his army of fallen angels make the ministry of the gospel the primary target of their fiery darts. From the beginning of time, Satan has been the great deceiver. He's always prowling around, seeking someone to devour, planting seeds of doubt as to the veracity of God's word and as to the truthfulness and sufficiency of the gospel. Satan is real. He is the father of lies, especially as it concerns the sufficiency, the person and work of Jesus, and the efficacy of the means of grace, the word, sacraments, and prayer. The second thing I've learned over the past 20 years of ministry is that ordinance and pastors are often confused about their primary calling, about their primary calling. Over the years, I've regularly come across seminary students and licentiates and even ordained ministers who are at best confused and at worst resistant to the idea that the primary calling of the pastor is to proclaim the gospel through biblical preaching and sacraments. A few years ago, two young men came to our Presbytery's credentials committee meeting. At the time, I was chairing that committee. These young men desire to come under the care of our presbytery and begin the process of ordination. They were both graduates of a prominent Reformed seminary. Not this one, by the way, in case you were wondering. When asked by our committee to describe their internal call to the ministry, neither one of them mentioned the ministry of preaching, sacraments, prayer, or the shepherding of God's flock. These primary 
and essential duties of the pastor were for some reason outside of their purview of ministry. In their minds, the ministry of the gospel was about a whole lot of things, but the ministry of proclamation through word and sacrament did not seem to be one of them. A second example that highlights the confusion among ordinance, among students in seminary about the nature of calling is from the preaching classes I've taught, the labs that I've taught over the years uh, in the Atlanta area. Even with forthright lecturing and substantial assigned reading on the primacy of the gospel in preaching. In fact, I would use Dennis Johnson's uh, wonderful book on preaching as one of our textbooks. With all of that, and even with an in-hand sermon evaluation sheet, which said on that, it had about 10 questions on it that students responded to the sermons on, one of the questions was, did he clearly preach the gospel? They had this before they even prepared their, their sermon that they would preach in class. And it was awkward at times. Uh, you want awkward moments? Teach a preaching class. <laughs> and ask the question, did he preach the gospel? I mean, what a ridiculous question <laughs> at a reformed seminary for a preaching class. But I cannot tell you the number of times the students were going, uh, no, he actually didn't do that. And then those same students would get up the next day and the same thing would happen. It's extraordinary how many miss this clarity and emphasis preaching the gospel. A third reason for my concern is the preaching I hear in churches that I visit while on vacation um, or while participating in presbytery or general assembly worship services. Much is said in these sermons. Much is said that is good, but more often than not, the gospel is assumed in these sermons and in these worship services rather than trumpeted and proclaimed. And dear friends, can it ever be said enough that the gospel should never be assumed when the church gathers for worship? Our liturgies should be saturated and dripping with the promises of the gospel in our prayers, in our confessions, in our songs, most of all in our preaching and in our administration of the sacraments. Even the sacraments can be administered in a way that does not proclaim the gospel but focuses on our own good works. Rather than be assumed in our worship, the gospel must be central, must be boldly proclaimed. The assumption of the gospel will lead to a misplaced confidence, a confidence in our ministry strategies or the magnetism of our personalities or the strength of our moral strivings rather than the gospel and the means that God ordained to sanctify us and to shape our very identity in Christ. It's the beauty and the, uh, the, the glory and the wisdom of God that he gives us these simple means of grace which are meant to proclaim the riches of Christ. And yet we often mess those up as well. I wish I could say that these failures to preach Christ are a rare occurrence, but they are not, even from men who are trained in sound reformed seminaries. Through articles that I read, sermons I hear, conference lectures I listen to, and conversations I have within my own denomination and beyond, I'm realizing that there is a lot of confusion and wrongheadedness about the nature of the call to gospel ministry. Perhaps it would help to explain and to tell you what gospel ministers are not. 
Gospel ministers are not social justice action heroes commissioned to rid the world of injustice and sin and bad guys. Ministers are not commando culture warriors called to redeem music, yoga, and the arts for the coming kingdom. Pastors are not called to be life coaches, called to inspire folks to get their lives in order and develop a better self-image. Nor are they showmen called to entertain and and to amuse. Ministers are not therapists called to equip people to be more positive and functional in a negative and dysfunctional world. Ministers are not entrepreneurs called to build God's kingdom through polished programs and Harvard Business School-inspired strategies. And finally, ministers are not celebrities called to build their brand, promote their name, and grow their shtick, even if under the rubric of, I do it all for the sake of the kingdom. No, all of these notions of ministry are wrong, but they are prevalent, I think, in 21st century American churches. They can even be easily identified in our own circles, our own reformed circles. But it must be said that they are all distortions of the true nature of gospel ministry. The gospel ministry we see in the New Testament and the gospel ministry we see modeled so prevalently throughout church history. The 21st century reformed pastor is called to a ministry of proclamation. We are ambassadors announcing the good news of the gospel through the ministry of word and sacraments. Dear students, this must be on the forefront of your minds as you study for the gospel ministry. The primary calling of a minister is to be a herald, an ambassador through which God himself makes his appeal to sinners to be reconciled to God. Before we are anything else, we are heralds. And we must get that in our thick heads. We all have thick heads. And this is what your congregation needs you to be more than anything else. It's what they need you to be more than anything else, more than than for you to be their buddy, for you to be their friend, for you to go to the gym and work out with them. It's important for ministers to connect with their their congregation, but not, not in place of this. This must be central, must be primary in our ministries. Who will play this role in the lives of the people that God has placed under our care if we don't? Who will do it? This leads to the first main point of my lecture this morning, and that is that pastors are called to be heralds of the gospel. Historically, a herald was a, a, quote, a royal or official messenger, especially one representing a monarch in an ambassadorial capacity during wartime. In other words, a herald was a person that proclaims or announces news on behalf of a monarch. A herald is also a, a, quote, a person that precedes or comes before an important figure, a kind of forerunner or harbinger of someone or something. We see examples of heralds all over the scriptures, don't we? When Joseph rose to power in Egypt, Pharaoh employed heralds to call out among the crowds to everyone who should bow the knee as Joseph's procession of chariots went by. Or how about the situation with Mordecai in the book of Esther? After Haman's wicked plans were foiled, the king of Persia honored Mordecai and Haman himself was made a herald in the town square. 
leading Mordecai's horse and declaring, Thus shall it be done to the man who the king delights to honor. I've been preaching through Daniel in our morning services over the last couple of months. And there's, of course, the story of Nebuchadnezzar, that Babylonian king who sent out heralds to declare that all men should bow down to the monstrous golden image that he had built and to proclaim a penalty for those who would not bow down. The major and minor prophets were heralds. Their primary task was to declare the judgment and salvation of God to the nation of Israel. Then, of course, we cannot forget about John the Baptist. He was God's messenger, the last Old Testament prophet or herald, as it were, sent to be a forerunner of Christ, sent to prepare the way of the Lord, the Messiah, the anointed one, the Lamb of God, who would take away the sin of the world. And then, of course, there's our Lord Jesus Christ. He was a herald, the herald of heralds, proclaiming and announcing the good news of salvation and the coming of the kingdom of God, Matthew 4, 23. He went from town to town, preaching the gospel. And in Mark 1, 38, we even have a situation that develops where people are lining up to be healed, and his disciples are looking for him, say, everybody's looking for you, Jesus, where are you? And he said, I'm, you know, I'm out here praying to my father, I'm, I'm walking with God, as it were, and guess what, it's time to move on to the next town, because the reason the Lord sent me was to proclaim the gospel. It's why I came, he said. And of course, the apostles were heralds and ambassadors, weren't they? Preaching the word of Christ. We read earlier the apostles' words to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 5.20. We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you then, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He says who they are, then he does what he's supposed to do. Right here in this, this little verse. The apostles were obeying the great commission. As they sought to make disciples by proclaiming the gospel through word and sacrament, planting and strengthening churches as they went into all the world, so much of what pastors focus on today, often to the neglect of gospel proclamation, is utterly foreign to the mission of the church and what his disciples carried out in the first century. This panoramic sweep of scripture reminds us that God establishes, builds, protects, and strengthens his kingdom through the proclamation of his word. It's that word above all earthly powers that raises sinners from death to life by the Holy Spirit. The same word that created the cosmos, ex nihilo, speaks the church into existence as it is faithfully proclaimed. It's the word that Ezekiel preached to the dry bones, those, those, those dry bones in the valley, those very, very dry bones. In Ezekiel 37, God commands the prophet to preach to the dry bones. And then there's that rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. The bones were then covered with flesh and God breathed life into them. How did this happen? What does this mean? It happened by the word of God, and it's a snapshot of the salvation of the church of the ages. It's not just prophets and apostles who are called to be heralds and ambassadors. It's also ordained ministers in the 21st century, 21st century reformed pastors who are set apart to the primary task of proclamation. In Paul's second letter to Timothy, he charges his disciple and all future ministers to preach the word, to be ready in season and out of season, to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. All lawfully ordained ministers are first and foremost called to be heralds of the gospel. Through his 
audible words preached through his visible word of love in the sacraments. Why? Because the gospel is announced and applied through these means and ordinarily not apart from them. That's one reason why the Westminster Confession 25.2 states that apart from the church, there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. Isn't it evident to us? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. Isn't it evident that this ministry is the ministry of the minister to preach the gospel? Elsewhere, Paul expresses in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, And I, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And when I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Do you want your ministry to rest in the power of God? Then preach the word. Preach this good news. Paul did not have a misplaced confidence in ministry because his confidence was in the word of the living God, the divine word that spoke the universe into existence with all of its creative, life-giving power. This was the same word that Peter preached at Pentecost and that Paul preached in Athens and that Timothy preached in Ephesus and that your pastor preached in Southern California this last Lord's Day. A few, few years ago in Savannah, I was getting ready to meet with the session of Independent Presbyterian Church where Pastor Terry Johnson is, of course, a board member here at Westminster. And I was sort of waiting in the library until it was my time to come up and I was uh, looking at a few things. I noticed they had uh, the, a new copy of Calvin's sermons on Acts. And so I began flipping through and uh, one of my favorite uh, passages in the, in, the, in the book of Acts is Acts 2.42. Um, and they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. And I began reading uh, some of the commentary, some of the uh, commentary at the beginning of this this particular sermon. And the second full paragraph in this sermon is absolute gold. Quote. Now Luke explains more fully what happened at Pentecost. Those who gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Here we see an imposing and remarkable power. With a single sermon, Peter leads 3,000 individuals to Jesus Christ. In that, we are to see how God works powerfully and are not to be so dazzled that we find it strange. True, we are to admire the works of God in order to glorify him in them. But we must not find them strange, as I said, since heaven and earth were created by his word alone. So since we are dealing with the same word, even though proclaimed by human beings, we must not doubt that it is powerful and that our Lord empowers it for the glorification of his name and the building up of his church, just as he had done from the beginning. Did you get that? When ministers preach the word of God faithfully, they proclaim the very same word that created the universe. Are you going to have more confidence in the culture's word in your preaching? Are you going to have more confidence in your own word in your preaching? 
You can have more confidence in the word of your congregation to tickle their itching ears, telling them the things they want to hear. Or do you want to preach the powerful, life-giving word of God? This word is a word to be confident in, a word that's efficacious, a word that never returns void and always accomplishes that for which God sent it forth to do. That's a, a word that by the Spirit creates and nourishes saving faith, a word that raises sinners from death to life, a word that comforts the weary soul, a word that destroys Satan, a, a gospel word that saves the elect and builds the church and every tribe, tongue, and nation. That is the word, beloved, that God has called you to preach in your future ministry. Are you going into the ministry then to be a herald of this word, this word above all earthly powers? Because if we ever needed young men, if we ever needed young men who have a blood earnest commitment to preaching this word from Genesis to Revelation, faithfully for the rest of your life and trusting to the Lord the results. It is now. We need men who will stand up and stand in the gap and be ambassadors and proclaim the Lord's message to preach his good news. It's now. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. I've had a chance over the last couple of years to be in several of the seminaries and and of our, in our Reformed heritage and, uh, of course, involved in denominational life. And, and I'll tell you, there is a big need for men who are more interested in proclaiming the unsearchable riches of Christ than anything else. There's such a big need for that. Will you answer that call? Because if your idea about gospel ministry is something other than that, then I don't know what call you're hearing but it's not the call to gospel ministry. It's something else. And if it is, go do that. Do that and we will bless you and pray for you and you can be a member of a church somewhere. Maybe even serve in leadership, be an elder, a deacon. But the gospel minister is called to make disciples through the courageous, unswerving, and consistent heralding of the gospel through the ordinary means of grace. There is a famine of preaching in the land. Who will rise to the call? For the remainder of our time, I want us to focus on the specific means that God has given pastors for the ministry of proclamation, namely the ministry of preaching and sacraments. You know, it used to be in the old days um, that when we referred to someone who was in a ministry, they'd be called a minister of word and sacrament. Uh, today, it sounds so outdated, and yet that's exactly what the minister is called to be. First of all, pastors are called to preach the gospel from all of Scripture. If anything should mark a reformed pastor's ministry, it should be a blood earnest commitment to proclaiming the sovereign majesty of God and the unsearchable riches of Christ in the gospel. It's, it's what God's people need. It's what, it's what non-Christians need to hear. That proclamation, first of all, takes place in the preaching of the word. Now, this is a huge subject, so we're just going to think about a couple of aspects of this. We're going to think about the content of gospel preaching and then very briefly, the manner of gospel preaching. The content of gospel preaching and the manner of gospel preaching. First of all, the content of gospel preaching. What is true gospel preaching constituted of? Well, I depend. It 
I, uh, I, I, I say it, it depends on who you ask. It depends on who you ask. I've learned over the years that quote-unquote gospel preaching stands for a lot of things. Once in a presbytery worship service in the, in the PCA, I heard a so-called gospel preaching that focused on and exhorted us to place less attention on the redemption of souls and more attention on redeeming the earth. Last year, during a Reformation 500 service, I heard so-called gospel preaching that didn't announce the good news of salvation in Christ at all, but did very boldly announce a new reformation of social justice and income inequality. I've also heard so-called gospel preaching that neglected to proclaim Christ, but did an adequate job of teaching us how to live with purpose. I realize it's anecdotal, but I hear sermons like this over and over and over again, and not in some general evangelical environment, but in our reformed churches and courts. I can only suspect that many Bible-believing congregations are exposed to this kind of so-called gospel preaching every Sunday. And while many of these sermons are encouraging in one way or another, there is one common denominator with all of them. The gospel is hidden. Christ is not proclaimed. And I suppose it's like the, the illustration of the, uh, the poor child who is walking through the trash heap uh, in their uh, slum somewhere and looking for scraps of food. And from time to time, they find something quite good and they begin to eat it and it gives them a little bit of nourishment. So they just keep looking. And so they stay there in the trash heap. And maybe just down the road, there's a place for them to get a wonderful uh, four-square meal. And so you have so many believers, I think, that are in these kinds of settings where they're getting just little scraps and they're getting little moments where there's some gospel breaking through. And so they end up staying there, malnourished, thinking that this is the best that there is. The gospel is hidden in so many places. It's not proclaimed. In other words, the earth-shaking announcement that Christ has defeated sin, hell, and death and has granted forgiveness, imputed righteousness, and everlasting life to wretched sinners like us is hardly mentioned or referred to. Indeed, if it's mentioned at all, it's a footnote rather than the subject. The gospel may get an honorable mention but is not the central focus. Who wants an honorable mention? You know, you go to the, the sports banquet and uh, everybody's getting these awards. And for the honorable mention, it's like, please don't let it be me. I want no mention. If I have to get an honorable mention, this shouldn't be. The gospel shouldn't get an honorable mention. The very essence of Christian preaching is the preaching of the gospel. It's the proclamation of the person and work of Christ and all of his implications for the Christian life. T. David Gordon and his provocative little book called Why Johnny Can't Preach. I don't like that title, by the way. I mean, it's just offensive to me. My name's John. <clears throat> I can't sing hymns either, by the way, uh, apparently. T. T. David Gordon writes, from about 25 years of wrestling with the question, I have come to concur with those who believe that the content of Christian preaching should be the person, character, and work of Christ. What we declare with Paul is not ourselves, but Christ crucified. Well, of course it is, John. Well, I would hope we'd be able to say, of course it is. Uh, not too long ago, I was on vacation, and um, 
actually this was, this was a while back and my kids were a little younger and uh, they were required to take notes during the sermon. We were on vacation and the, the pastor began his sermon and, and, and after the third movie illustration to open his sermon, 15 minutes in, my daughter looked up at me and I was sort of steaming, you know. And uh, she looks up at me and she shrugged her shoulders. I said, put the pen away. There's nothing to write down today. And the whole sermon went through. And then, of course, um, my, my daughter, whom I love dearly, but she loves to wind me up a little bit, you know, so we get out into the car and she says, what did you think of the sermon, Dad? <laughs> um, <laughs> I said, sweetheart, why don't you tell me what you thought of the sermon? I'm interested to hear what you have to say first. She said, well, I said, well, how about, let me frame it this way. What's the difference between the preaching that you hear from, from your dad and from, from Pastor Cliff back at our, our church in, in Douglasville and, the, and what you heard this morning? She said, well, the pastor this morning talked a lot about himself. And you all talk a lot about God and Christ. This is what she said. I said, wow, what a, from the mouths of babes. You know, we talk so much about ourselves when we should be talking and glorying in and reveling in the person and work of Christ. He goes on to say, our message, like Paul's, is the message of the cross. With John Flavel, we wish to open up the fountain of life, which consists of Christ's essential and mediatorial glory. What is offered to the congregation in rightly ordered Christian worship is nothing less than Christ himself. We don't have time to think about this, obviously, but the worship service itself must be framed. And a reformed, proper reformed liturgy does this. It, it sets the table, as it were, for the gospel to be proclaimed from beginning to end, and especially in the preaching and at the table and at the font. A few years ago at a presbytery meeting, I was asked to be part of a group of ministers who would go into a separate room during the, the, the meeting and hear a brief sermon from a candidate for ordination. I can't remember what he preached on. I believe it was an Old Testament text. He had obviously put a lot of time into his sermon and he was being very careful with his exegesis. The problem was he didn't preach Christ. Uh, he never led us to Calvary. He never told us about the marks of love in Christ's hands and feet. He, he never took us to the place where God's love and justice met, where our sins were atoned for, where Satan was defeated. The central message of the Bible was unwittingly disregarded. When asked what we thought about the sermon, my response was that that was the best Jewish sermon that I had heard in some time. I now serve on the credentials committee in my own presbytery with this faithful brother. And he preaches the gospel now. But at the time, he unwittingly ignored Jesus in his sermon. I just think, how often does this happen? should be the first question that comes to our mind when we're preparing a sermon. Am I preaching Christ, the heartbeat of the scriptures? When Paul first entered Corinth, he walked into a bustling commercial seaport, a significant amount of uh, commerce and trading between Italy and Asia took place in Corinth, and so it was a, a strategic place to plant a church. We often talk about strategy in church planting, and this is a very strategic place. This busy urban center, however, was known for much more than commerce and trade. It had what Pastor Kim Riddlebarger describes in his commentary as, quote, a notorious reputation for being a center of sexual promiscuity, much like Copenhagen, Amsterdam, and Bangkok have today, end quote. Corinth was teeming with prostitutes, many of whom were associated with the pagan temples in the, the center of the city. 
Think of it, an urban center steeped in heavy commerce, sexual immorality, and idolatry where the gospel was unknown. Sound familiar? It could be the description of many cities in the West today. One can only imagine what would have happened if a 21st century church planting network had been transported back in time to assist Paul with this project. One can imagine them saying, first, we need to do a sociological analysis and demographic survey of Corinth. Then we will need to develop a contextual strategy for pre-evangelism. And if it's too early early for pre-evangelism, we need to do some pre-pre-evangelism. Then we will need to do a few surveys with the people to discover what their deepest needs are, because we really don't know those. Perhaps after a year or two, we can sponsor a few art and craft beer outreach events at Stone Brewery, which will lead to the forming of some small groups, which we hope that one day, perhaps, maybe in the future, will lead to some public worship services where we'll preach the gospel. Of course, throughout the entire process, we're going to need to serve quality coffee. But what does the Apostle Paul do during his 18 months in Corinth? What does he do? Believing Christ's words from Acts 18.10 that there are some of Christ's elect there who have not yet been awakened, he devotes his time and his energy to courageous gospel proclamation. In fact, in the opening chapters of his first letter to the Corinthians, he summarizes the ministry and message of the apostles. Rather than catering to the demands of the Jews for signs and the Greeks for wisdom, the apostles proclaimed the word of the cross in Corinth, which he describes as folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul did not come to Corinth with slick programs, lofty rhetoric, or sociological insights. In his own words, he summed up his ministry among them in chapter 1, verse 23, as proclaiming Christ crucified. And again in chapter 2, verse 2, he expressed that I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. Now, please hear me. I am not saying that all kind of pre-evangelism activity and uh, being strategic and, 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 and doing contextual surveys are altogether useless. I'm not saying that. That can at times be helpful. I, I, I have never done them and I don't do them, but I, I think that they can be helpful in some ways. It's important that we understand and connect with the community we are called to evangelize. However, we don't want to put our confidence in these things. And we never want to do these things to the neglect of the proclamation of the good news. In Colossians 1, 24-29, Paul gives an autobiographical sketch and summary of his and the apostles' ministry. In verse 28, he writes, Him we proclaim. Him, that is Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, he says, struggling with all his, namely Christ's energy, that he powerfully works within me. You preach Christ in the energy of Christ. You toil to preach Christ in the energy of Christ. It's calling of the gospel minister. And then I wanted to draw our attention to one of the most revealing, yet I believe neglected New Testament texts as it concerns the plain preaching of the gospel. 
It's found in Galatians 3, 1 and 2. Turn there in your Bibles with me, if you have your Bible. Galatians 3, verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Paul rebukes the Galatians because they were negotiating the gospel. Indeed, they were annexing their own works to the gospel, making salvation an act of cooperation rather than that which was fully accomplished in Christ and received by faith. They were trusting in in their performance of elements of the ceremonial law as a part of the grounds of their salvation. But what I want to point out to us this morning is Paul's description of his own preaching in Galatia. I wonder if anybody would describe our preaching like this. Paul says, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now you, of course, will know that those who received Paul's letter in Galatia were not in Jerusalem 25 years earlier when Jesus was nailed to the cross. And if they weren't there, then what do Paul's words mean? Well, please get this. This is, this is huge. Paul's words mean that his preaching among them was so vividly Christ-centered, his descriptions and explanations of the crucifixion so striking and evocative that it could be said that it was like the Galatians had been there at Calvary when Jesus was bleeding and dying on the cross for their sins. In his sermon on this passage, Calvin says this, quote, In saying this, Paul is telling us how effectively and powerfully he had preached the gospel. It was as if he were comparing the doctrine he had taught them to a, quote, portrait. Furthermore, he says that what he preached among the Galatians was virtually equivalent to seeing for themselves the Son of God crucified in their midst, as if they had witnessed his blood shed for the spiritual cleansing of their souls. Luther comments that it's as if Paul said, quote, No painter with his colors can so lively set out Christ unto you as I have painted him by my preaching, yet you remain most miserably bewitched. Again, Calvin, this time in his commentary on this text, states, Paul says that his teaching was so clear that it was more like a picture of Christ. They had knowledge so deep that it almost gave them a vision of him. The actual sight of Christ's death could not have affected them more than his preaching had, Calvin says. And then he writes, let those who want to fulfill the ministry of the gospel in the right way learn not only to speak and proclaim, but also to penetrate into the consciences so that people may see Christ crucified and that his blood may flow. When the church has painters such as these, she will have no more need for wood and stone images. End quote. Dear preachers and future preachers, do you want to fulfill your ministry as a herald, as an ambassador, as a 21st century reformed pastor, then clearly and unashamedly proclaim this Savior 
this crucified Messiah from all of Scripture. Who else will do it if we don't? Who will spend their lives trumpeting the gospel if gospel ministers don't do it? How could anyone listen to our preaching and not hear about the loveliness of Christ crucified and risen and be led to Jesus and be led to him, to receive him, to revel in him, to love him, to abide in him, to admire him. He is the yes and amen to all of God's promises. He is the realization of the ceremonial law. He is the apex of the unfolding story of redemptive history. We are called to preach him. And not just to preach him, but to make an appeal that God's people receive him and rest in him. To do so with passion, John Stott writes, quote, if we can preach Christ crucified and remain altogether unmoved, we must have a hard heart indeed. More to be feared than emotion is cold professionalism, the dry, detached utterance of a lecture which has neither heart nor soul in it. Do man's peril and Christ's salvation mean so little to us that we feel no warmth rise within us as we think about them? We are to preach Christ. We are to preach the person of Christ as well as his work. It's an important distinction without separation. We preach the person of Christ. Jesus is not just a doctrine. He's a person. Jesus is not just his redeeming work. I remember having a counseling session uh, last year with a couple and and I was exhorting the husband, and, and at one point I, I sort of got a little impassioned, and I said, you know, Jesus is a person that you're called to love and to walk with. He's not just a, a doctrine in a book. And he told me just a few weeks ago how huge that was for him in that moment, that he had sort of forgotten that. How often does Jesus just become this, this head of doctrine in our and our standards, rather than a person. He's a person. We are called to follow the person of Christ, and so we must get to know him and, our, and help our congregation get to know him. And your preaching, be sure to herald and teach Christ as the second person of the Trinity. Preach his divine sonship. Preach his nature as the true God and the eternal word. Preach his glory, his holiness, his majesty before the angels. Preach his hypostatic union, the relationship between Christ's two natures. Dwell upon our Lord's profound love and compassion for sinners. His grief and his anger over sin, his, his tender forgiveness for the penitent, his frustration with the heart of heart and what the Puritans called his sheer loveliness. Preach the person of Christ. So much so that God's people grow increasingly captivated by him, by his person. I was speaking to uh, Joel and uh, others last night about Ed Clowney and uh, how much he has taught us about preaching and I was reminded by a friend not too long ago that Ed Clowney once said, uh, I suppose my style of preaching draws people to Christ more than drives people to Christ. Now, I think we need an element of both of those things in our preaching. But I think we really lack the sort of preaching that draws people to Christ. In other words, we, we preach... Christ and all of his glory and beauty and sacrificial love. And people are drawn to that rather than simply, simply 
recognizing the depths of their sin and getting driven to him. I think we need both. But oh, how we need more of the former. Preach Christ's redemptive work as well. From Bethlehem to Nazareth to Jerusalem, preach his incarnation, preach his virgin birth and all of the implications of these things, preach his perfect and personal obedience to God's law, his penal substitutionary suffering and death on the cursed cross, preach his burial, preach his hell-conquering resurrection, preach his ascension and exaltation, his heavenly reign as prophet, priest, and king, his parousia and his eternal presence with his people, all laid out so beautifully in our catechisms. Preach these things. Teach these things. What could be more appealing to the elect of God than this kind of preaching and teaching? Preaching that is forthright, accessible, loving, winsome. Preaching that exalts the holiness of God, exposes the depravity of man, and trumpets forth the unsearchable treasures of salvation in Christ. Some, however, marginalize this message in their preaching rather than view the gospel as good news that must be preached, that we can't help but preach. It's often viewed as old news. It can be assumed or ignored for more pertinent, timely, and appealing subjects. Worst of all, some will neglect the doctrine of the gospel in their preaching and teaching because it is just plain boring. They think it's dull. It doesn't stir the imagination like a, like a great story that I could tell you or five stories I could tell you in my sermons. It doesn't stir the imagination or move the affections or stimulate the intellect like other things can. It won't fill the pews. It won't pay the bills. Responding to this kind of nonsense, Dorothy Sayers, in a familiar passage I know to, to many of you, writes, quote, Official Christianity of late years has been having what is known as bad press. We are constantly assured that the churches are empty because preachers insist too much upon doctrine, dull dogma, as people call it. The fact is the precise opposite. It is the neglect of dogma that makes for dullness. The Christian faith is the most exciting drama that ever staggered the imagination of man. And the dogma is the drama. The dogma is the drama. This is the dogma we find so dull, this terrifying drama of which God is the victim and the hero. If this is dull, then what in heaven's name is worthy to be called exciting? The people who hanged Christ never to do them justice accused him of being a bore. On the contrary, they thought him too dynamic to be safe. It has been left for later generations to muffle up that shattering personality and surround him with an atmosphere of tedium. We have very efficiently paired the claws of the Lion of Judah, certifying him meek and mild and recommending him, recommended him as a fitting household pet for pale curates and pious old ladies. One of your graduates, two of your graduates, one who's an ordained minister now, graduated here, and got in their car and drove to Charleston, South Carolina. We started a church. There was nothing. There was nothing. Christ Church Presbyterian didn't exist. There were other gospel preaching churches in the area. We praise the Lord for that. But Christ Church didn't exist. And through the preaching of the word of God, through the preaching of the gospel and simple pastoral care, by, by preaching the gospel and loving the people, a wonderful and dynamic combination, by the way. 
you preach the gospel and you love people, watch out. The Lord will use you. But the Lord has done it. And he has drawn people with this gospel from all walks of life. Artists, entrepreneurs, inventors, professional athletes, teachers, homemakers, professors, and on and on we could go, who are now weekly being fed the riches of Christ through word and sacrament. Perhaps the Lord is calling you to plant a church somewhere and to be confident in the gospel and not in how much hipness or coolness or what kind of a cool or flashy name you could give to your church to draw people in. What will draw the elect is the faithful proclamation of the gospel couched in a ministry of love and kindness. The content of gospel preaching must be the person and work of Christ. It must be. And before we go to the last point, I do want to mention just for a moment the manner of gospel preaching. There is a conversational style of preaching and a casual approach to the sacraments that is popular in our day. And I believe it is incompatible with the calling of a herald. With the calling of a herald, it approaches preaching as a kind of fireside chat rather than an authoritative proclamation of the word of a sovereign king. It's a style that fits better with fellowship over coffee than in the context of public worship where we gather before our exalted king. This kind of preaching is informal, it's chatty, it's non-confrontational. And I think it tells more about the preacher than it does the God whom he is preaching. And so we need to remember these things. I do want to mention uh, that there is this wonderful little story of, of two Scottish ministers who were in a presbytery, and uh, this man was getting ready to preach. And the one seasoned minister said to, to another, Oh, um, wait till you hear this young man preach. He's, he has a lot of promise. And uh, the man uh, bounded up the stairs. The young man bounded up the stairs into the pulpit, and he began uh, to preach. The sermon began strong, but as it progressed, the young man struggled to explain the passage. He grew increasingly uncomfortable and stumbled through his points. After he concluded, he walked down the stairs of the pulpit, deeply humbled. The one minister sort of sheepishly looked at the other and said, well, what would you think? He then responded, the young man should have gone up the stairs like he went down the stairs. And he would have gone down the stairs like he went up the stairs. You know, the manner of our preaching should not be that we are full of self, but that we are full of Christ. It must be self-deprecating and Christ-exalting. May we become less and he become more. Just a couple of words now about preaching Christ from the font and the table. When you think of the sacraments, do you think of them playing a central role in the life of the church and of Christian piety? Do you view them as foundational to discipleship and the shaping of Christian identity? I have observed over the last 20 years that they have played a diminutive role in most evangelical and reformed congregations. There exists a kind of sacramental anemia in our churches. Or maybe we could call it a sacramental phobia. Rather than administer baptism and the Lord's Supper with serious and positive instruction and pastoral care, helping our congregations to, to grasp the profound significance of these Christ-instituted means of grace, the sacraments are often trivialized, sentimentalized, <clears throat> and marginalized. 
But for the faithful, reformed pastor in the 21st century, you must make it clear to God's people that the sacraments are designed by God to play a central role in their discipleship, in their worship, in their growth in Christ. They are divinely instituted means of grace through which the gospel is communicated to all of our senses. They are meant to be a vital part of our Christian experience of Christian worship and piety and should not be on the margins of our ministries. These are primary tools of discipleship. And and can it be said enough, public worship, the gathering of the people of God, is concentrated discipleship. Parachurch organizations have redefined what discipleship is. They said discipleship is when you meet one-on-one or with groups, and that is an aspect of discipleship. But the key Essence of discipleship takes place in the context of the gathered people of God before their covenant God with the means of grace. Read the Heidelberg Catechism section on the sacraments and be reminded of why it is so vital that we proclaim Christ in these means of grace. I wish I could say more about that, but for time's sake, we'll close. As we do, let us remember that what we are discussing this morning is counterintuitive and it's countercultural. It's counterintuitive to entrepreneurial and innovative Americans who want to see fast growth and easily discernible results in the ministry. It's countercultural because the culture is just not interested in a first century crucified son of a Jewish carpenter. We are all tempted to put our confidence in other things. Things that make us and our churches attractive in the world's eyes and cause little offense as possible. But ministers are called to gospel proclamation. We are called to walk with God and to proclaim the gospel. It's our primary task. It has always been the minister's primary task since the days of the early church. Only in the gospel do we witness the unleashing of the saving power of God in Jesus Christ. That's why Paul in Romans 10 encourages the church to send forth preachers to preach this word of Christ. Will you devote yourself to this? Horatius Bonar, the great Scottish minister, said, quote, The more fully that the gospel is preached in the grand old apostolic way, the more likely is it to accomplish the results which it did in the apostolic days. Charles Spurgeon, the preaching of Christ is the whip that flogs the devil. The preaching of Christ is the thunderbolt, the sound of which makes all hell shake. R.C. Sproul, now in glory. Your task, O preacher, is to make sure that you are faithful to the text, that you are faithful to the proclamation of that gospel, that you are faithful to set forth the whole counsel of God and then step back and let it happen. Dear pastor, Dear future pastor, the lion of the tribe of Judah is roaring in the voice of his gospel, and he is never roaring louder than when 21st century reformed pastors are faithfully proclaiming the gospel. By God's grace and strength, therefore, proclaim Christ, strive for nothing less, and make that the unmistakable hallmark of your ministry. Let us pray. Father, we are humbled because we recognize as we consider a subject like this how inadequate our ministries are to faithfully proclaim this good news. So grant us, O Lord, your weak servants to faithfully herald this good news 
of salvation in Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins, imputed righteousness, and everlasting life. O Lord, be glorified as we seek to carry out your will in our gospel ministries. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright 2018, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.